Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello, it's springtime 2022, and this is the first time since springtime 2020 when we first started working on High Theory that Kim and I are in the same place and the same room. We are very excited and we wanted to take this opportunity to make this happy announcement. Sharonik and I are pleased to announce that High Theory is entering into partnership with the New Books Network. The New Books Network is an amazing podcast platform with multiple channels that produces interview-based episodes on new and recent academic publications. They have recently begun partnering with existing podcasts and we are thrilled to join them. In order to have our entire show on the New Books Network, we are going to relaunch our episodes from the beginning, one episode per day. To our loyal listeners, we want to say a heartfelt thank you. We could not have stuck this out without you. And to our brand new listeners, we are super excited that there will be more of you every day and we say welcome. And if you like what we do, please spread the word. Welcome to High Theory, and today we are talking about the University Press with Rebecca Colesworthy. Rebecca, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. I am Rebecca Colesworthy. I am a senior acquisitions editor at the State University of New York Press. I acquire in many areas, including education, literary studies, women's and gender studies, queer studies, Latin American studies, Latinx studies, some psychoanalytic theory, and probably some other things I'm forgetting. I'm also the author of a university press book. So in 2018, I published uh, Returning the Gift, Modernism and the Thought of Exchange with Oxford. Let me ask you my first question, which is what the heck is a university press? (laughs) <laughs> a, a university press is a nonprofit, mission-driven publisher of scholarly works. That's sort of the most 
bare bones definition I can offer. That said, ultimately, university presses are really as varied as universities themselves. So there really is no no single model of a university press. We vary dramatically in our size, in our staffing, uh, in our areas of strength and specialization. Um, some have trade imprints and lists and publish fiction and poetry. We've certainly done some of that. Right. Uh, some really excel in you know, regional publications. Some have really robust journal programs and open access platforms. So there really is a lot of variation. The, the one thing I will say, though, is that I think inevitably there's sort of an identification between university presses and the universities of which we're a part that does and doesn't hold up. So I think we absolutely sort of run probably for worse than for better in, in similar prestige economies. So presses right. tend to sort of bear the status of their university. But we do also really occupy kind of an interesting semi-autonomous position as you know universities lean ever more and more into STEM and a certain business model and you know just the endless instrumentalization of all knowledge and skills. So I think you know that our strengths tend to be more oriented toward the humanities and social sciences means that we can often be in these positions where you know we we expand the strengths of the university. We are sort of advocates for the very liberal arts that are under threat. Um, It also means that we have a lot more in common with the positions and situations of our authors than I think is often recognized. So I think we share working conditions, right? We, We share interests and investments in the very fields that are being so endlessly devalued and disinvested in. So you've been you know, at both ends of the process of the publication of a scholarly book. Mm-hmm. So given that, uh, let me ask you my second question, which is how do we use a university press as an editor, acquisitions editor? I love this question so much. So well, needless to say, probably my perspective has changed a lot <laughs> now that I am on the, the editorial publishing side of things. And, and, you know, I wasn't in this role when working on my own book. I was working full time in fundraising at a nonprofit organization and basically had to like hustle and finagle to get library access every year um, while I was there so I could still do my research and writing. And it was just one big monstrous pain, but totally worth it. Um, But, but I think what's, you know, what's so interesting is that in some ways I worry that we already um, from the sort of scholar author side of things um, view university presses strictly in terms of their use, right? Like, I feel like it's often in this kind of utilitarian, instrumental way that we see university presses as a means to an end, whether that's like, I really think I have to like have a book on my CV in order to get a job or in order to get tenure, et cetera, right? Um, And so we, you know, we, we have this kind of reputation, which we are totally at fault for helping to propagate, Right. As a kind of, you know, as a sort of black box, right, as this gatekeeper, this like awful thing to be navigated and muddled through. And again, we, we, you know, we've absolutely historically played a part in that, though I think there's a real investment by many of us now, I hope, in in sort of promoting transparency and communication. I do think there's another way in which we're sort of 
already viewed with respect to use, which is that I think, especially amid the horrors of casualization and right. adjunctification and, um, you know, how scholars are just being endlessly driven out of the academy or just are made to kind of overpopulate its undercompensated margins. Right. Um you know, I think there are real anxieties uh, about being used by university presses. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we often get caught up in conversations about, you know, sort of so-called academic capitalism, right? And there are real concerns about being kind of exploited by university presses and concerns that I don't dismiss at all, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I've been in, I'm in the position of an independent scholar, right? So it's it's not that I'm indifferent to that in the least, but it does sort of miss, it can risk misrepresenting some things, right? Like we are not sitting back profiting enormously off of scholarly publications, right? We yeah. we're nonprofits. We, you know, the, the bulk of books we publish do not recuperate the costs of producing them. I just, I wish there were a more kind of like mutual outlook on it right i would i think there are you know ways that we can partner with one another more and recognize each other as having you know mutual sometimes conflicting sometimes complementary forms of expertise right i'm not an expert in every area i acquire in i trust authors i trust readers i trust series editors and that has to be a big part of what i do i think that trust has to run the other way too, right? That, you know, like we're not trying to ruin your book. <laughs> we're trying to help you realize a vision, but there are also forms of expertise we bring to the table. I think there's just, there's a lot of invisible labor that happens on the publishing side, yeah. right? And so I'm always amazed by how conversations about publishing play out without any publishers involved. A lot of conversations, for example, about the peer review process, that's a problem, right? The, the reader to cliche was not created ex nihilo that grows out of very real problems, right? Yeah. And, and that process gets talked about as if it's not like a heavily mediated, managed process. There's so much behind the scenes that goes on there. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, like there's an editor who has to deal with that and figure out how to abstract what's useful and edit the crappy mean report and, you know, figure out what's salvageable. And there's just a ton of emotional labor involved. And so like we have to be part of these conversations and, and they can't just be conversations about feelings. Yeah. Right. Like they have to be conversations about labor, yeah. the author's labor, the reader's labor, the publisher's labor, the yeah. whole shebang. Our listeners, a majority of our listeners are going to write books. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a happy thought. And even <laughs> what you say uh, about casualization and instrumentalization of knowledge, yeah. even without all of that, writing a book, pitching a book are very, you know, honest and vulnerable things to do. Mm-hmm. And so as an acquisitions editor, briefly, what should a prospective author keep in mind when they, you know, get in touch with you about? Um, it is such a horrifying process. I, I will not, you know, I mean, on that side of things, I relate like I can't even tell you. I mean, I think it's worth bearing in mind that publishers, like we want to publish books, right? Like we want mm-hmm. to hear something we're really excited about, right? It's, it's um. I, I genuinely think that there is an openness and eagerness on publishers 
side, even as we're harried and exhausted and probably slow to rem- like reply to email and you have to send us follow-ups and all of those things. Right. Um, but like the investment is genuine. And what listeners should know is that a publisher, while they may want to know that you're out there and engaged in conversations and in different ways, no publisher should be judging your work. I mean, thinking especially about this issue of casualization, right? And just the the sort of challenges of, of an academic career these days. No publisher should be judging any project based on where the author is or isn't situated. We want to see authors psyched about their work, right? So yes, it's important to be able to, to be able to talk about your project to someone who's not necessarily an expert, right? right? To someone who does, I mean, I think that's the hardest thing to do is, is to figure out how to take like five steps back from this thing you are so deeply in. I mean, I'm just going to use my own book as an example, sorry. <laughs> but it was, you know, it's really hard for me to be able to get that distance and say, you know, look, in the context of modernist studies, we talk a lot about the relationship between modernism and the marketplace, right? right? And assume that modernist producers were necessarily hostile to the marketplace. I'm really interested in, you know, how that isn't entirely the case. And in sort of surprising ways, they use ideas and narratives of gift giving, which we might think of as, you know, antithetical to the market to think about that. And so um, already I can hear the 10 ways in which that's like way too deeply immersed in the topic for anyone (laughs) not so into it, but like, but it's really hard to set that scene. Yeah, and I think yeah, that yeah. that's really crucial, right? Yeah. Is is you can't just say, my argument is breaking ground. Look at how I'm trailblazing and it's so important. Yeah. You have to like, you know, let your audience know what the conversation looks like in yeah. order to clarify how you're contributing to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I can, uh, I'm nowhere near the process, but like even <laughs> writing my dissertation, I can honestly say that even when I'm being like told that, okay, Sharnik, where is your argument? Even then, like mm-hmm. finding an argument is so much easier than telling a story about what I'm doing. And um, that's, that's huge, right? And I think, and that's what a really, I mean, that's hopefully what a really good book does. How will university presses save the world? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is actually my favorite question. So uh, you really, you guys really do have the best questions. So <laughs> How will they save the world? So I do think that, you know, there's a certain kind of canned answer to this question, which I I think you could probably like readily see versions of in different places, right? So so it's most tempting to answer this question in terms of subject matter and what we publish. Right. Right. It's it's most tempting to do that. And I think we see university presses doing that a lot, especially in the context of our so-called, right, like post-truth era, right? And, and I actually hate that term, and I think it's an utterly invalid description of what's happening in our world. But right, but, it, but we do live in a, a time and place where, um, where expertise, right, is endlessly devalued. And um, we're like, hopefully past the, the stage of fake news, right? But, you know, it, it endlessly feels like, yeah, like evidence and expertise hold not nearly as much sway as we would want them to, right? And so I think university presses have a way of kind of um, upholding what we do, 
right? As, as sort of clearinghouses of data and, and analysis and wield what we do with a certain kind of authority. And I think that's all super valid. Right. I also think that like leans into a kind of empiricism that's representative of a small fragment of what we do. Right. So like not every book is about climate change. Right. And so um, so that kind of only goes so far. Right. And and given that my own background is in literary studies, I published a book in literary studies, you know, but also you know, publishing itself is part of a literary culture. Right. And so so I can't help but like refract the question through that. Now in terms of what I acquire, I publish works in Latinx studies, in gender studies, in Black studies um, that are absolutely, you know, making different forms of contributions, right? There's there's a lot of discussion and concern about public humanities and how do we reach people. But the bottom line is, like, if you are working in those fields, you, I mean... <laughs> our authors are reaching people like to be really sort of crude about it. You know, those are the books that tend to sell really well. Like the authors that I work with in those fields are coming from a position where they absolutely want to be speaking to broader communities and they're doing it quite honestly. Right. (laughs) Um, Which is amazing. Right. And, and they are, they're very much engaged in scholar activism and, and, you know, like the work that they're doing is, I mean, we have an amazing series in critical race studies and education and like, needless to say, it is timely and relevant at the same time. I think it's important to bear in mind certain practical limits, right? I mean, books are social and political through and through, right. But reading a book in the privacy of one's own home is not the same as like voting or striking or rioting, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I do, you know, I think it's still important to um, recognize certain distinctions. I guess, you know, I would say that um, more immediately, I think university presses are probably like better poised to help save the university. (laughs) Um, And, you know, precisely because we are advocates and guardians of the fields of knowledge and specialization that are most under threat and devalued and, you know, disinvested in. And and so I think that, you know, we, we are proponents of the liberal arts writ large, right? And so, but that also means, right, that it's not just about thinking about what we publish, but who we are, right? Like if the university press is poised to have a hand in saving the university or the world, it's insofar as it's also a site of labor as academic workers, but also just as workers more broadly, right, as, as part of a force that can potentially break down this sort of disastrous, often false notion of a kind of inside and outside of academia. Um, you know, it's in that respect, right, as, as workers, as fellow organizers, as fellow unionizers, right? Like, it is significant that we have seen three university presses unionize. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. Right? And so it's in that respect that yeah. we have any chance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like, the as you said, like, the in the university system, the people who used to get rich are still getting rich, so the rest of us might as well be kind to each other. And Exactly, <laughs> and, exactly. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for coming to High Theory and talking to us about university presses. Thank you. And thank you for listening to High Theory. 
If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonic Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.